0: Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding, a place dedicated to the discussion of Christian faith in 21st century life. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So join us as we endeavor to understand 21st century life through the lens of Christian faith. I'm your host, Alan Bevere, pastor, professor, author, and lover of Five Alarm Food. Come and seek with me. Well, good morning, good day, good afternoon, good evening. Whenever you're listening or watching this, friends, we welcome you. This is Faith Seeking Understanding. I am Alan Bevere, your host. I am a pastor, retired professor, Bible moth, theologian in exile, and a peddler of hope. And I am the self-appointed Anselm of Canterbury Chair of Podcast Theology and Culture here at Faith Seeking Understanding University, a completely fabricated institution of higher learning but a place where all seekers are invited to ponder profound things free of charge. I am excited. This is uh, one of four episodes that we produce here at Faith Seeking Understanding called The Wesleyan Way, where we reflect on things that pertain to the Wesleyan tradition and Methodism. I'm so pleased to have my friend, uh, Reverend Dr. Paul Chilcote. Um, who is retired most recently is retired from Asbury Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida, at their campus, and uh, I'm sure is not retired with a lot of his writings and things he's doing. Paul, how are you doing today? I'm
1: great, you know, you never retire, it's just redeployment,
0: it is redeployment, that's what I'm discovering. Yeah, it's it's just and it's but it's fun. I mean, there's something about it that's I don't know what I don't know how to say it, it's a little different. You're you're freed from. You're freed from having to do things to get money, <laughs>
1: right? <laughs> just, I think it's you're being in charge of what you do. You you do yeah. what you want
0: to do, and you can say yes, and you can also say no, and yeah. So you're right. It's it's a great thing. Well, Paul, thanks so much for for doing this. And friends, we're going to talk today about Paul's. Uh, this is this your latest book?
1: No. Okay. You know, it's about three or four back.
0: Oh, my gosh. Well, see, Paul is such the writer, pro- prolific writer. But I want to talk about this book. Here it is, friends. Active Faith. The subtitle is Resisting Four Dangerous Ideologies in the Wesleyan Way. It's a wonderful read. It's not a long read. Uh, it's a good read. And um, so we're going to get right into this and have some conversation with, obviously, uh, as you know, you you and I know all too well in United Methodism. Uh, we got a lot of challenges. Uh, a lot of things are happening, right? There's, there's just a lot going on, yeah. and uh, so you write this book as part of that conversation. And I appreciate that. I want to. I, I appreciate first of all the very ironic tone of this that you you uh, offered the criticisms of, that you have the concerns that you have, but you. But really, it's kind of an invitation to further dialogue, isn't it? What What mm-hmm. you're writing, and you talk about that, and yeah. and even with those who are not where you are on certain things.
1: Sure. Yeah, there there are kind of three things that coalesced uh, to bring this book about. You know, one was what you've just been talking about, kind of the status of the United Methodist Church today and the the polarization, the divisiveness, uh, kind of the rancor inside the life of the church. And, And as I thought about that and looked at it, um, it seemed to reflect a lot of the things going on in society. Yeah. And maybe those were more critical drivers in the division than actually what you might describe as biblical Christianity or concerns that, that are relevant to, the, uh, to our scriptural witness. Mm-hmm. So that was one, you know, where we are. So the, even the preface, yeah. I use the language, practicing a way forward together. And some Methodists, United Methodists, may remember this idea of a way forward, finding a way forward. Um, The positive, the, the book is kind of, has a negative side and it has a positive side. Let me take the positive side first. In more recent years, I've become more and more convinced that one of the most important aspects of the Christian faith is what we practice. We are, in fact, shaped by what we practice more than by what we say we believe (laughs) or what we do in life that's kind of spontaneous, let's say. So there are practices in which we engage that shape us into the people we are. We are our practices. So I wanted to look at Wesleyan practices that can shape us into holy, loving, kind, and generous people. Hmm. And so the practices that, uh, that I look at in this book, they won't surprise anybody. Truth, joy, peace, and love. And those are practices that come out of our Wesleyan heritage that were very central uh, to the early Methodist people and to the Wesleys. That's the positive side. I wanted not only to to talk about difficulties in our time, but to provide solutions. You know, in the context of dangerous ideologies, what can we do positively? And these practices are a part of that. I'm sure we'll talk more about them. On Mm -hmm. the negative side, um, Mm -hmm. I I was noticing quite a number of what I would describe as dangerous ideologies that were surfacing In the life of our world, North America, perhaps in particular, um, that that really eat away at authentic Christian life. Uh, And this really has concerned me uh, deeply. So there are four of those ideologies from from the subtitle that are are kind of the negative counterparts to the positive practices uh, that I talk about in the book.
0: Okay, great. Wow, that is great. We're going to talk about each of those four ideologies here uh, in a little bit. Um, so let's, uh, so, so the, uh, one of the things that you uh, say in this book is that this is a progressive Wesleyan uh, approach. And, um, uh, you know, I, I would initially was going to talk a little bit about the word progressive. I'm, I'm not a fan of it for reasons, for other reasons. Sure. However, once I started reading this book, it was clear to me that that word is, is intrinsic to what you want to do, right? Mm-hmm. As long as, as well as Wesleyan. So let's define those. How would you define when you say it's progressive Wesleyan, let's do progressive first, and then let's do Wesleyan. What, is, what do you mean when you say progressive?
1: Yeah, I think what I mean basically is positive steps leading us into a future filled with hope. Okay. If if I had to it's it's what are the positive steps we can take? That that's what progress actually means. It has to do with with taking steps. And um, you know, there there are so many things that we could be doing in terms of the steps that lead us in directions that are destructive. So I, I wanted to try and identify some of those steps that we can take that move us forward. But but a kind of a humorous note note on this. I was first working on this book, I told my wife, Janet, I think I'm going to entitle this a progressive Wesleyan manifesto. And she said, Oh, no, you are not. (laughs) (laughs) And I've always always listened to my wife, because she knows much better than I do in these things. So a progressive Wesleyan manifesto, she thought (laughs) might not strike exactly the chord. (laughs) <laughs> it might yeah. close my book off to a yeah. whole constituency. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> she certainly was wise in that. <laughs> okay, so that's progressive. And by the way, I, I like I like what you do with that the word progressive in the book. What, what's I asked about Wesleyan for a couple of reasons. One is we may have some viewers and listeners who are not in the Wesleyan tradition, but sure. also you know, I realized just a few years ago with all of the uh, disagreements that we're having in United Methodism and the different issues and the different things. And, you know, you get you get uh, people jockeying for the high ground and being Wesleyan. This is Wesleyan. This is not Wesleyan. And I, it just it just <laughs> dawned on me that, that just because someone says I'm Wesleyan, we're Wesleyan, doesn't mean we're going to come to an agreement on everything that's Wesleyan or how we're going to interpret that. So, um, when you uh, when you talk about being Wesleyan, what's
1: that mean? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, for the last uh, couple of years, uh, right after retirement, I was invited to serve as the uh, director of the Center for Global Wesleyan Theology at uh, Wesley House in Cambridge. And I had to do some thinking, you know, global Wesleyan theology. What is that? And one of the things that I, I do, uh, Alan, is make a pretty clear distinction between Wesleyanism and Methodism, because there are a lot of there are a lot of Methodists say within the United Methodist Church, or also within the emerging Global Methodist Church, that really know very little about the Wesleys or our theological heritage, as the uh, kind of spiritual descendants of John and Charles Wesley. So I think that's kind of step one. There's a clear distinction between Wesleyan and Methodist. So to take the Wesleyan side, uh, John and Charles Wesley were two, uh, I, I would say, amazing theologians of the 18th century. So they're now old, but I think in many ways, timeless and timely. So I have I have no interest in resurrecting the Wesleys because I'm a proud Methodist, you know, because I, I think we just need to know these. For me, they're really profound mentors in terms of Christian faith. John Wesley, through his preaching and his theological writings, and um, the sermons of John Wesley, the so-called standard sermons, are still a part of our doctrinal heritage mm-hmm. as Methodists, Charles Wesley, a lyrical theologian uh, who, who expressed his theology through hymns, through a sung theology, uh, which in some ways is actually more profound to me than John's sermons. you think, for example, I'm sure uh, even even those hardcore Methodists who are listening or uh, watching this, um, you may be able to to name a sermon or two of, of John Wesley. My guess is most have never read a sermon of John Wesley, unless maybe they're ordained and and had to in seminary. Um, but how many of you have sung, Oh, for a thousand Tongues to Sing, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling, um, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. All these are hymns. And and I think that uh, theology penetrates deeply into us much more so than that kind of prosaic uh, work of John Wesley. So, at any rate, you know, it's it's the work, it's the perspective, it's the vision of John and Charles Wesley uh, that is what what I'm really referring to as Wesleyan. And if I had to to define that more fully, I think one of the things that I would want to say about this heritage is that it is a both-and as opposed to an either-or way of doing theology. So the Wesleys had this uncanny ability to hold together aspects of the Christian faith that are oftentimes torn apart. Or separated from each other, so you take issues like faith and works. It's a both and, yeah, both faith and works, personal and social, physical and spiritual, word and table. You can you can literally go through the entire uh, theology of John and Charles Wesley and draw out these uh, potent um, conjunctions, a synthesis. Uh, of these. And I think one of the things that, 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 that in one way, this is saying nothing other than they were both really good Anglicans. Mm-hmm. They, they were really good priests of the Church of England because this was the Anglican approach um, to I, I call it an approach of wide embrace to to extend our our embrace as wide as we possibly can to draw in as many as possible, despite the differences within uh, perspective or approach. Uh, it, Wesleyan theology, Wesleyanism, is a tradition of wide embrace, both and.
0: Good. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. That sure helps. I, I do. That continues to be the thing, by the way, that just keeps me uh, so so rooted in Wesleyanism, Is the is the both and kind of a thing um and uh you, call, you know you in a way you call for that in this book let's have the conversation and and have that wide embrace and bring people in so let's get into these four uh mm-hmm. concerns uh your chapter one truth and practice of humility and you talk about resisting fundamentalism so that's the first uh ideology that you're you're concerned about um and you uh um, first of all, well, first of all, you want to say, and I appreciate this, this is um uh, in the prologue, you say, I'm not a big fan of isms. I prefer to engage real <laughs> persons, not ideas, but in a declaration of this nature, some abstractions and generalizations are necessary. This is really important to me because I, I mean, you know, you got the people, the no labels people, whether it's politics or other things. And I mean, I understand that sentiment. And I think in general, labeling people, pr- particularly, pejoratively is not a good thing but it's really hard to speak Mm -hmm. without resorting to some of this I mean at some point you've got to name something so it's not that all fundamentalists or all Wesleyans progressives for that matter are all monolithic but there's a what is it there there is a button you know that's that that puts us in general camps so I really appreciated Mm -hmm. your your qualification there.
1: Yeah, for um, me, for me, Alan, all of that is basically a a way to understand. Yeah, but, but my my primary concern um, is not certainly is not winning. <laughs> I'm it's there is a, a an element of persuasion, obviously, because I want to be honest about who I am. That's all built into this book. You know, it represents who I am and what I represent but I'm not as anxious to win as I am to understand. No. I, I want to understand what, what people think and why they believe the things they do, why they act the way they do, why they support the causes or the uh, kind of the, whether it's political, religious, social, whatever, what, why they support the things they support in life. Um, so it's a, all this is is a matter of understanding for me. Okay. And and understanding not just um, kind of in an abstract, amorphous kind of way, but understanding life through the perspective of the biblical witness as well. Um, and so, so each of these chapters has kind of a, a primary biblical text around which it revolves. So it's not just kind of independent navel-gazing. Yeah. It's really trying to understand life uh, through a particular set of lenses that, um, within our Christian tradition, we believe are important.
0: Yeah, one of the things I want to get into the first one here, but 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 as you say that, one of the things that uh, struck me too is I remember years ago George W. Bush said this, uh, and I'm quoting Bush. Yes, I am uh, George <laughs> W. Bush. George W. Bush said that is often he's a, that- a good Methodist. He's a good Methodist. He is a good Methodist. He says, uh, um, and he's a good Methodist who attends church. I guess it's just like that. Uh, but he said, often in disagreement, we take the worst of the opponent and we compare it to the best of our side. Right. So in other words, we find, so in, in this context, we find, so, it, you know, the 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 evangelical Wesleyan who is not progressive will find the craziest idea uttered by a progressive Wesleyan, and hold that up, is what progressivism is. While they ignore the goofy stuff that evangelical Wesleyans say, and hold out the best. And I, I do that to say one of the things about your book is it centers. It's centered in Scripture. You use Scripture, and sometimes one of the takes on progressive Wesleyanism is you don't really care about Scripture. You don't. You don't care about the authority of Scripture. Yes. You can get on Facebook and find some progressive Wesleyans who, pro- who really don't seem to care, right? But that's not the best. And yeah. you really dig into scripture. So can you say something about the importance of making sure, because you just said you seek not to win, but to understand. Yeah, let me, it, it, me plug. It's hard work to understand. Yeah yeah, let me
1: plug a book. I mean, I love to plug books in situations. Yeah, please, like please. This. And one that's been really helpful to me for many years now. I don't know when I first encountered it. It's a book by Michael Kinneman entitled Truth and Community. Uh and in that he has an appendix where he offers I think it's about 10 guidelines for dialogue. And one of those uh one of those uh, Propositions about dialogue or something that facilitates good dialogue is always thinking about your partner in terms of the best of what they represent, not the worst. Exactly what you were just saying. So if you want to take a look at a resource that provides some real, I mean, we we need dialogue these days, maybe more than anything else. So if you want a good resource for that, Michael Kinneman Truth and Community uh, is helpful. Right. So you, you wanted to hear a little bit more about um, about kind of the scriptural orientation. Yeah. 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 A um, cu- couple things, really. Um, the book, even though this was totally unintentional, <laughs> Ellen. Sometimes the way you do things reveals something about yourself. That you simply don't even recognize as something intentional, and it wasn't intentional. The book does follow something like a quadrilateral mm-hmm. approach. So you have a scriptural text around which things revolve. So, for example, I think I'm remembering properly the, the final chapter on love is uh, Luke's account of the prodigal son. Right. So you have that text. But then I also follow up with with a um, particular historical uh figure or for example I think hospitality i take the i take the um, the story of le chambon in france uh-huh. that uh, cared for uh, jewish children in particular uh so you have kind of a, a tradition kind of tradition has a place there and, and experience a reason i don't have to spell it all out so the the scripture I would say is in this larger context of a way of doing our faith, understanding our faith, and living it in this kind of profound quadrilateral way. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's an important thing to say. the fir- The first chapter uh, deals explicitly um, with how we listen to or approach Scripture. Because that's dealing with, the, um, w- with this ideology of fundamentalism. And within our Christian tradition, um, and I think growing in our time, is a kind of biblical literalism or biblicism um, that is an expression of fundamentalism. And Fundamentalism basically says we possess all the truth, um, and the only thing that's right is what we say it is. Um, so there's a kind of a, a constraining, uh, 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 barrier-creating, you know, walling up, some kind of a fortress-type mentality about Scripture in that. So the Wesleyan approach uh, to Scripture is, first of all, I would say dynamic, mm-hmm. that there, there's nothing static about it. It's not, not a sense in which... Uh, scripture is uh, has one meaning, and that meaning extends through all time, all places, all different kinds of circumstances. And a part of the reason why the Wesleyan view of Scripture is dynamic is because, uh, I'll say John Wesley, John Wesley believed that Scripture is inspired, so that the Holy Spirit is an active agent in the creation of what we call the Bible, our sacred texts uh, scripture but the spirit is equally active in the inspiration of the community or the individual who is seeking to study appropriate apply that scripture in in its own life or their own lives so there's a kind of a double inspiration going on which means that scripture scripture is always new mm-hmm. It's never just old. It's it's always new. Uh, so I love the the language of living word. It's a living word. It's not simply archaic words that we rip into the future or into the present. Uh, it's it's a dynamic process of engaging the word. That also requires a community. Yeah, um, I think the Wesley's realize it's dangerous for any one person to engage scripture without the community of faith um, engaging it with them.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you use one of the examples you use in this this dynamic understanding is you talk about John initially in his opposition to women who teach and, and offer the word, uh, a sermon, a message, whatever you want to call it. And But when he saw what was going on in the community with this, with the women in Methodism, with his own mother he began to change. He began to think, Hey, the, the spirit's doing something here need to pay attention to. It. Um, okay. And so that's good. That's good. Um, you know, you, you, you talked about, by the way, one of the reasons I think this is an important word for our, our culture, because you talk about the problem with fundamentalism is the need for certainty. And then we, of course, we all have a need for certainty on some level, but, but you talk about how, you know, Uh, Life is more ambiguous and and complicated. I think there are a lot of uh, people today, particularly younger people, who um, are are more comfortable with complexity and ambiguity than maybe their parents are or their grandparents. And that there are a lot of people been alienated from the church community because they've run into church communities who just know the answer to everything. I I still remember, just tell you a quick story, uh, when I was at a- Ashland first, uh, and and before I retired, uh, there was a, a young man who came into the sanctuary for church one day. wasn't a big attender, and I was I was preaching, and I don't remember what I was saying, but I I asked a question in my sermon, and then I responded, I have no idea what the answer is. <laughs> I said I don't know how to I don't know I don't know what the answer is. I'm trying to work through that and. So I got a I got a I got a, a text from him who said I want to meet with you because you're the first pastor I've ever heard who said he didn't know something. I want yeah. to talk to a pastor who doesn't know everything, which <laughs> which for me was just I mean you know to say that is to just to state the obvious. Um, but there yes, is and a that, problem and that today.
1: really that really plays, uh, Alan right into the central theme of that first chapter, which is humility.
0: Yeah. See, yeah. It's
1: it's it's a posture of humility that led you to be able to say I don't have an answer here. Yeah, only someone who is living out of a space of humility will do that. Yeah, um, and, and you know, oftentimes those in my in my experience in life, those who have um, kind of a, a low esteem or kind of an uncertainty about themselves are the ones who act out in dogmatic ways, as yeah. if you see they do know everything or in that yeah. fundamentalist trajectory.
0: Yeah, that's a good point, yeah, self
1: humility. Through through most of my life, I think, I mean, I've said in teaching, I'm sure in classrooms on many occasions, I think that the natural tendency of most people is to want things black and white. Mm-hmm. I think our natural tendency is to want things clear. To use again that image, we want clarity, we want certainty uh, about things, and black and white gives that to us. But my experience in life is that there's actually very little in life that is black and white. So we're called, really, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, uh, to live in the gray. You know, to find to find our way through. Um that dynamic.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent, excellent. And you connect, I and you mentioned this, but I like how you connect uh we'll call it a virtue with each one of these. And so this one mm-hmm. on fundamentalism is having humility. Let's move on to the next one. Sure. Uh joy, joy in the practice of hospitality. And here you have uh got a critique of where well, you say resisting nationalism, and which which again is uh there's always a kind of nationalism that you know, we have had throughout the history, American history, but right now really is uh, a lot more uh, pervasive and rearing its head in ways that concern me greatly, as I know it concerns you. So let's talk about what, what, from your perspective as a Christian, what's the problem with, with nationalism, Christian nationalism?
1: Yeah, nationalism essentially says that my tribe is more important than any other tribe that my group of people, my, my people are more important than others. Um, you know, what's, what's the problem with this? It's all, it's hard to answer that because it's uh, everything. <laughs> everything
0: it just ain't good.
1: It's wrong, <laughs> wrong with this. And we live, we live at a time, I would say, unfortunately in the United States of, of, blatant christian nationalism it's not just nationalism it's it's the christian community or a a portion of the christian community that are embracing this elevation i mean dare i say america first Mm -hmm. you know america first um which is uh, i think i'm right to say antithetical to the gospel it's antithetical to the gospel. Uh, the Gospel of Jesus Christ is inclusive. It, it embraces all people as brothers and sisters of one family as opposed to the Hatfields and the McCoys right. <laughs> you know who feud uh, in in life. Um, so it's a the, the Christian faith is and I, and I don't I have no illusions that this is easy. In any way whatsoever, but the Christian faith is a uniting force, ideally in the yeah. life of the world. It's a bridge-building force, um, not not anything other than that. So, and and primarily, um, you know, to use the L word, you know, it, love is the, is the heart and core uh, of of all of this. So we have some real challenges, I think, in the United States these days, related to Christian nationalism, um, and I can't talk about it. Although I don't, I don't make a major issue of this in the book. I think maybe reflects the several years back when it was when it was written, and I'm not sure I even would focus so much on this today. But there is a direct parallelism here, in my mind at least, with what was happening in Germany in the 1920s and 30s after the First World War and the rise of nationalism, yeah. and which became fascism right. uh, in Germany under Adolf Hitler. Yeah. So there is a, a serious danger here of the direction that this takes um, that, that we can trace historically. Uh, and see the kind of havoc that it wreaked on people uh, in the earlier 20th century.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting you mention that, because one of the things I've done is distinguish, because, you know, it is popular today to be sloppy in playing the Nazi card. You know, Barack Obama was accused of being a Nazi, and Bush, George W. Bush was accused of being a Nazi. So I really try to avoid that. But there is, but what I do say is, if you talk instead about nationalism and authoritarianism, which you get in the 30s and not you get before even Hitler comes to power, and right. that's You have an authoritarian authoritarianism and a nationalism that ends up, if you give it, if you give it space and air and you you fuel it, does turn into fascism or can turn into communism, depending on depending on the leaning. But so it's perfectly acceptable for me to say, you know, some of the stuff we've been seeing in the last six, seven years looks like, maybe not Germany in the 40s, but it looks like Germany in the early 30s, in the late yeah. 20s. Absolutely. Yeah. And and so it's, it's, which,
1: what I, it's what I would call a Bonhoeffer moment. It's a Bonhoeffer moment. It's a Bonhoeffer yeah. moment in right. which we're
0: living. Exactly right. And no, by the way, nobody nobody votes for a dictator. Nobody says I'm voting for this person, because we need a good dictator. No, they vote for someone who offers them security, offers them uh, to solve the problem, and uh, they're willing to overlook certain things. And then that's, you know, so so it's not that dictators get power, authoritarians get power, and then that ends up turning into a dictatorship. So those are just some thoughts. Yeah,
1: that talk. reminds me of something I had meant to say a little bit earlier, uh, and directly applicable here. I think, um, kind of statement number one we live in a time of unbelievably rapid change Mm -hmm. and my experience i'm basically an historian when i look at the history of the church or the history in general when when people are going through an era of change what they want is authority They, they want someone to say this is right and that is wrong they, they they default in in a more aggressive way I think I would say into that black and white mold uh and if there's somebody who can assume that authority on their behalf it relieves them yeah then yeah. They, then they don't they don't <laughs> they don't have to be troubled with the messiness of life you see. So right. I think that the nature of the changes that we're experiencing in our world today are astronomical and I think lead in in the perspective, the attitudes, and some, maybe even subconscious, unconscious uh, ways of being of people, they, they want an authority uh, an authoritarian. That that's what they are yearning for in this time of rapid yeah. change. Yeah. And when when I think of the change that's happening just in the course of my lifetime, it's pretty astronomical. When, when you think about changes in technology, you, you think about the demographics of the United States. And, and it will take a lot to convince me, Alan, that the, at the root of almost all of this is a latent, if not blatant, racism.
0: That I'm racism
1: is still an issue in our national life that we have never been able to to kind of get beyond uh, in into a more healthy way of living. So yeah. if racism, and you think of the, the demographic changes, I think this has a lot to do with people's attitudes about immigration, for example, uh, everything. It, it, just, it, it clouds and pervades life, racism.
0: Yeah. It is. It's right there. And and there's no doubt about it. It's interesting, as you say that, uh, in the early 90s, I was doing work in generational differences and trends and things like that. And I I was giving, I was going to district district, uh, conferences and church conferences presenting this material because my DS at the time wanted me to do it. But everything I read, this is 1990, 91, 92, everything that I was reading Uh, All these people who follow these trends were saying that the next major, major crisis in America will be right about now, (laughs) they were saying about 2020 or so, and it will be over race. It'll be over the changing demographics. I mean, they were saying this 30 years ago, people who were in the watch. So here we are. So So
1: basically, you know, in, in in the end, I think it all boils down to one word, power. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah you know so right. so those of us like you and i who are white white middle upper middle class folk um uh, m- many people in our era in our generation you know think longingly back to 1953 and and with with the kind of uh, rose colored glass review of the past where well, everything was just so great which basically yeah. meant all of us were in control. Yeah, we we had the power. Uh, we controlled the power in government, um, and now all of that's different. Now all of that is changing, and that unsettles people. Yeah, and makes them angry. Yeah, um, it doesn't bring out the better angels. Yeah, see yeah. of our character. Yeah, uh, so there there's we we live in a. Uh, maybe it was in our in our pre-blog uh, conversation. We're talking about uh, some of these things, and um, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I was struck. Uh, you tell the story uh, in the book of your one daughter uh, and her Muslim friend,
1: which yeah, very really concerned
0: Anna uh, because of what was going on at the time. A lot of anti-Muslim rhetoric, and you know, she reached out to her friend, who I guess they exercised at the gym together. Right. Uh, it re- it reminded me of back in 2016, I think 15, 16. There was some talk, although it didn't happen, but there was some talk by what I'm going to call nationalistic, nativistic elements in politics, saying that maybe we need to have all Muslims register. You know, and and of course, you know, any of us who know history, <laughs> you know, that just you know, we just we just the red flags go up. And so the first day that that a presidential candidate mentioned that, the next day I got on social media and I said. If this happens on the first day Muslims have to register, I'll be in line to register with them. That's what I said. You would not have believed the emails I got <laughs> from Christians on that. Yeah, yeah. And, and not supportive emails, okay? <laughs> yeah. And it yeah, was, one,
1: one of the things too that I talk about in the in I think it's the same chapter, that second chapter on hospitality, is that there's nothing new in this. Yes, you know it's it's just a new iteration of the old theme. So yeah. back in the you know the, that era, where there was monumental uh, immigration to the United States, for example, from Ireland, all of the anti-Catholic, anti-Irish rhetoric and organizations founded to oppose that immigration. There's nothing yeah. new in this. Yeah, but what yeah. we need to do is learn. We, 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 you know history teaches us certain things yeah and we need to learn from that history and the failures of the past and when i say failures of the past what i mean essentially as a follower of jesus is our failure as a community as an individuals to live into the shalom into the reign of god that is intended for all people yeah, yeah. that's a it it's it's a in my view, it's an extremely dangerous indictment when, when the church is not simply living into the reign, but actively antagonistic to the values of the reign of God in the world. That's a dangerous dynamic. To that be is in.
0: a dangerous dynamic. I agree with you. Yes. Man, I, we could sit, we I could talk to you all day about this, but we're gonna move on. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're halfway through the book. <laughs> we're, 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 we're getting there, we're getting there. So chapter three, peace and the practice of healing. And here you are resisting dispensationalism. What's yeah. the problem with dispensation? It's big, by the way, as you know, uh dispensationalism in various forms. It's been for a while now in the American right. church anyway. What what's the problem with dispensationalism?
1: Yeah, let me before I answer that question directly, let me say yeah. the first the first two ideologies of fundamentalism and nationalism, I think are much more easy to understand. They're they're kind mm-hmm. of in-your-face ideologies. Whereas the 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 third and fourth, dispensationalism and then maybe particularly antinomianism, which none of your uh, uh, listeners probably have ever even heard of before, yeah. they're, they're more abstract, more more nuanced. So just to make that point as we move into, uh, into dispensationalism, uh, to put it simply, I think dispensationalism is a fundamental misunderstanding of the scriptural witness with regard to issues of the future uh, and the end of time etc. Uh and, but the effect of dispensationalism is its danger. The effect of cuz I don't want to go in all into the intricacies of the doctrine. Uh, the the effect of it is to say that that heaven is the goal and earth is just a staging ground for the real thing to come. Right? It takes our attention away from the world in which we live, including its injustices and the problems that we face here, and simply turning everything to pie in the sky by and by. It's an, it's an attitude that um, translates, as my, my great friend, I think mean, common friend Steve Harper uh, says There's, there are some Christians who are so heavenly minded they are no earthly good yeah so it 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 distracts us with the promise of heaven from those aspects of life in in which we must be engaged yeah. and here for me the primary illustration that is so powerful to me personally is the incarnation you know god doesn't stay in heaven God enters into human history, this this messy place in which we live, also a very beautiful place, but enters into this messy place of of human life and history, and lives life with us here. That's a powerful endorsement of life. Yeah. So in, in, in the Wesleyan way, there is no such thing as religion as escape. Religion is not escape from this world, something we might tend to associate more with, quote, Eastern religions, mm-hmm. like Hinduism or Buddhism, for example. It's not escape from this world. It's engagement yeah. with this world. Um, so that's the danger. And and I think, um, if I'm remembering properly, the kind of contemporary issue that I focus attention on is climate change, Mm -hmm. and the main reason I chose that, I could have chosen quite a number of different issues about healing, Um, but I chose this issue of climate change because we need to be engaged as Christians in helping to heal this global home that all of us live in together, and climate change is a huge issue and the reason i i focused attention there is there are so many so-called christians who are leading the charge against climate change mm-hmm. it's a hoax it's not real that's primarily dispensationalist christians
0: yeah who don't yeah.
1: care about this world
0: yeah yeah, um, I I refer to this as the gnostification of the gospel in the modern times. That you know the the early gnostics, all spirit is good, flesh is bad, matter is bad, bad. and this is what they've done. Uh, you, and you tell the story, I, you, the, the the very poignant story of the fellow you knew who was a Christian who clearly was very racist, and you oh. you asked him about that, you know, and he basically said, "Well, I'm you know Jesus has saved me. I'm going to heaven when I die. None of that stuff matters." <laughs> You know, yeah. and how you get that out of the, out of reading the New Testament is is beyond me. But you know, I I mean, I can I was raised in a in a broad evangelical tradition. I wouldn't call it fundamentalism, uh, but I remember that that was the thing. You know, you wanted to make sure you you know you had your your beliefs right, so you could go to heaven when you die. That was primary. Um,
1: I think I think for many people, that's that's the whole purpose of Christianity. Yeah, or or any religion that you go to heaven when you die. Yeah. and it's it's not that that's wrong I mean who doesn't want to go to heaven you yeah. know? Right. I'm kind right. of looking forward to that myself yeah but but the the purpose of of our faith as revealed to us in Jesus is partnering with God in God's good beautiful work in the life yeah. of the world now yeah and heaven that's begins right. here it doesn't begin at death. This is a very clear understanding of the Wesleys. Heaven begins here as yeah. we live into the fullest possible love of God and the fullest possible love of neighbor. Yeah, wow. and and with re- regard to climate change, I want to say the fullest possible love of our children, mm-hmm. and our grandchildren, and our great grandchildren who will inhabit this globe. Yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely in the next several hundred years i mean uh, we we have got to leave something behind that is inhabitable Mm. otherwise Mm. i'll just say blatantly this may be my most blatant statement here today ellen what difference does evangelism mean yeah what difference does evangelism make if we can't live on the globe
0: well that's a good point
1: now that's a lot that's don't get me wrong that's a long way down the road. Yeah that's that an in, in uninhabitable globe is a long way down the road. but we're moving there aggressively.
0: Well, and if we all and I think everyone would agree that we want to leave a better world for children and grandchildren. well why is why is concern for uh, creation uh, and the world and what's going on? why does is that not included? Right. in leaving them that world because it's not just about leaving them a the kind of world where they can make good money it's you know yeah. um it, you know and so you know i read a theologian many many years ago who was talking about this very thing and he said he said the the eternal life is the frosting on the cake but it's not the cake it's not the substance he said you know uh of of, of the gospel the substance of the gospel is living here and now in faithfulness and walking. Yeah. so yeah i thought it was good all right we got yeah, to get to the there. The,
1: the real, the real meal is Eucharistic.
0: The real meal is Eucharistic. Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah.
1: The real That's, meal yeah. is is a is a meal of Thanksgiving. Is a yeah. life of Thanksgiving and service to others. Yeah. yeah, we have to get to the last chapter, which is the most important in some ways. Love. Yeah,
0: love and the practice of holiness. holiness. I just, I just, uh, by the way, published a little book on holiness. That's shameless self promotion, friends. Just so All you right. know.
1: Run run out and get it right away.
0: Yeah, run out and get it right away. But I love what you wrote. Uh, I I thought, well, Paul Paul would agree with me. So this is good. I must be right. Uh, Chapter Love and the Practice of Holiness, Resisting Antinomianism. And you're right. I think that maybe that is not something a lot of us encounter. What is antinomianism and why is it a problem? Yeah, boy,
1: we have such little time. Let me try and wrap that up. We're good. We're good. Yeah, Uh, antinomianism basically comes from Latin, which means against law yeah um, and the basic understanding of this is uh, if we think about salvation, is putting all of our emphasis on faith and de-emphasizing the goal of love. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 watch cry of the Protestant Reformation of, of the sixteenth century was sola fide, Faith alone in other words opposed to salvation by works so but but wesley called that position sola fideanism in other words faith aloneism and and what what the wesleys do in their theology is restore the balance of faith as the foundation and love as the goal of redemption, so faith is essential. I, down here in Florida, where I am, not too far from uh, from uh, Cape Kennedy and Canaveral, and all that faith for the Wesleys is the launching pad. The mission is love. Mm-hmm. The, the goal is love. So the purpose of our life in this world is to love God as fully as we can and love. Our neighbor and all of creation as fully as we possibly can. That's the goal of this. Mm-hmm. So antinomianism simply fixates us on faith. Uh, so to use that same story you mentioned a moment ago, my neighbor, who who is a blatant racist, who said my faith my faith is in Jesus, therefore I'm saved. So what does what difference does it make how I treat other people? Doesn't make any difference. Well, I think anybody would notice there's something not right with that. Yeah. But but you'd be surprised how many people live as though faith is the end, not the beginning yeah. of of the process. So the uh, I talk I talk in this chapter about a a two chapter gospel versus a four chapter gospel, and I think that might be worth just playing out for a second yes if if we think about about the gospel the good news of god's love for us and jesus christ made known to us through the holy spirit if we think about that as as a as a great story as a narrative uh the full narrative has four chapters first chapter is creation God creates and declares everything, we hear a collective, good, creates everything good. But then there's the fall. Uh, Sin enters into our experience as human beings. Our lives are broken. Third chapter, therefore, is redemption. We are redeemed through the instrumentality of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes to save us. So redemption comes through Jesus chapter four is restoration. The purpose of all of this is that our lives, all of this universe might be restored to the way in which God intended it to be, the way it was essentially in the beginning. Uh, Now, the danger in our time that, that comes out of this antinomianism, or maybe the other way around, antinomianism comes out of this perspective, is that particularly within North American evangelical Christianity, that four-chapter gospel of creation, fall, redemption, restoration tends to be collapsed into the two central chapters, sin and redemption. So in other words, you are a sinner, Jesus is the answer. Now when it collapses into those two chapters what's lost Well what's lost is the goodness of creation all of every everything begins from the biblical narrative everything begins with the goodness of creation and that two chapter gospel also loses the goal which is the restoration of that goodness or if we think about the individual, the restoration of God's image, of the image in Christ, of Christ in our lives. So what I'm, what I'm arguing for, what, what the Wesleys proclaimed was a four-chapter gospel. It was a gospel that begins with the goodness of creation declaring all good, recognizes the, the brokenness of the human family through sin, and the redemptive purpose and presence of Jesus as Savior in our lives. The purpose of which is for us to engage with God in this marvelous uh, process of restoration, of restoring all things, of restoring shalom, Mm -hmm. you know, peace, goodness, well-being for all people. Uh, and that's a, boy, that's a, for me, that's, that's just a powerful image.
0: Yeah.
1: But yeah. the, pur- really... the purpose of, of my life is not simply to be a forgiven sinner. The purpose of my life is to love. Yeah. The, the purpose of my life is to be a loving person is to love to starting where we all need to start in my own home. Yeah. To love my wife, to love my children, my grandchildren to love my neighbors, and, and just create those concentric circles rippling out to the whole world mm. to love, and, and certainly to love God with every ounce of my being.
0: Yeah. yeah, forgiveness isn't the end of the gospel. It's one of the necessary means by which we get to the end, and that is right. recreation, redemption. Yeah, very good. Boy, Paul, well, We're going to have to end there this This has been a great conversation. By the way, again, to mention, and you you mentioned this at the beginning, you do uh, offer practices, as you say, you know, you, you're a Wesleyan, you're a good Wesleyan theologian. So, um, you know, as uh, I think it's Joel Green who said, uh, uh, Wesleyans do theology on the ground, you know, it's got to matter. And you do, you offer practices and different kinds of, uh uh you give some con- some of your thoughts on how we can begin to practice some of these things and so that's good yeah, each, each oh.
1: chapter each chapter yeah. gives you some practical guidance on a practice of truth yeah. joy peace and love
0: excellent it's a great book friends it's a great book and so uh here it is active faith uh it's uh resisting four dangerous ideologies in the res- wesleyan way i commend it uh to you written this would be a good book for uh, church to study Be excellent. So uh, there you go. All right, friends, that's all we have for today. Paul, thanks again. Just appreciate this. so much.
1: My pleasure. Great to be with you, Alan. Thanks for all you
0: do. Thanks. Thanks. And Jan, we miss you guys and Janet and you and Janet and and Ashland and just not being able to have these conversations face to face. So (laughs) uh, but but glad you're there uh, where you are and, and the flourishing that's happening with you. And I know you've got more stuff coming to be sure. Friends, this is Faith Seeking Understanding. I am Alan Bevere. Uh, and uh, as I always remind you at the end of every every cast, and actually it's really appropriate today, I think, for, for our topic, is Anselm of Canterbury, who's the patron saint here of Faith Seeking Understanding, who said, I do not understand in order to believe, but I believe in order to understand. So friends, keep seeking.